And the Oscar goes to, by a nose, Nicole Kidman. Good morning, Delara. Good morning, Sam. Uh, thank you for rolling out of bed, making coffee, and logging in just like I did so that we could do this on a Sunday morning. It's my pleasure, truly. <laughs> uh, we were both messaging each other like, um, I just need a minute so I can get coffee because I can't do this particular podcast uncaffeinated. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. I made like a huge pot. I put it in my cup and I put it in another cup so that when it's finished, I can just keep going because this film, oh boy, it's a hard one. <laughs> yeah, there was a moment where um, you and I had agreed on doing another movie and then we were just separately like joking about this movie. And at one point, one of us was just like, what if we just talked about that instead? (laughs) (laughs) I think we got carried away because honestly, like, this is bad. Yeah, I was like, I was expecting it to be bad. But um, I think after half an hour into the movie, I was like, we have made a huge mistake. Like, this is worse than I thought. And Nicole is barely even in it. Yeah, I've like done a handful of movies at this point where she's like kind of barely in it. But this is, I mean, in 20, I mean, I guess this movie was filmed in 2017, but like even 2017 for her to be in a movie like that little is pretty crazy. Oh, yeah. I didn't know it was in uh, 2017. So that's interesting because I was thinking, first of all, when did she get to time to do this? (laughs) Because she's been doing so much last year. And secondly, why did she do this? But I guess that we will discuss that later. Yeah, let's, um, there's a lot to talk about with that. But let's, uh, let's talk about you for a second. Um, obviously, this movie is a recent release. So it's probably not your favorite Nicole Kidman movie. Um, <laughs> but do you have like a favorite? Do you have any sort of like, moments where you first became aware of her that sort of thing? Okay, so my favorite and if you follow me on Twitter, you know this, is The Hours. I am absolutely in love with that movie. I am obsessed with it. And it's my favorite movie of all time. And therefore, it's my favorite Nicole Kidman performance of all time, which is not that common, actually. I mean, a lot of people love the film, but their favorite Nicole performance is not that one. It's usually birth, I guess. That's what I hear mostly, but it's my favorite. Yeah, if you're a if you're a gay man on the internet, your answer is probably birth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I am on all levels except physical a gay man, but yeah. um, <laughs> I am also a lesbian, and therefore my dear Virginia Woolf movie and Nicole Nicole's performance. It's not even just that I love Virginia Woolf or love the film. I think she just does something that. I am yet to see like happen. It's just out of this world. <laughs> and um, when I first, I am not sure when I first became aware of Nicole Kidman because my mom is a huge Nicole Kidman fan. Um, and I have like a very detailed memory of her taking me to see the others. And I'm very sure I was not supposed to see it at that age. Mm-hmm. Um I just remember seeing a lot of Nicole Kidman movies as a child. And I guess my first one, like most people, would be Moulin Rouge. Yeah, that tends to be pretty common. Also, what do I have to do to get your mom to be a guest on this podcast? (laughs) She's just going to talk about her like 
endlessly. We have a cat who is like has like yellow fur and very tiny nose. And my mom calls the cat Nicole Kidman. Like that's <gasps> the the passion she has. I think that's the first uh, anim- animal named after Nicole that that we've heard about on the podcast. So she has <laughs> she's already <laughs> in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I will ask the cat if she can be on the podcast. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. <laughs> that was going to be my next question. Um, yeah, I think The Hours is interesting because it is obviously like her Oscar winning performance, but not a lot of people's favorite performance but I think there's like there's something so exciting about what she does in that movie that I think is like easy to overlook maybe yeah and I hate it when you know some people's or I like to call them haters say oh she just like won the Oscar because she was ugly in it first of all she wasn't (laughs) yeah it's a great look it's a great look and it's a look I would love to be topped by um but um it's just so good i i don't even have the words to explain it i think she does something that if people do not give her a lot of chances to do something like that often i mean maybe more today but like back then especially i think it was more rare um yeah yeah i think about her like laying down in the garden like talking to that bird I'm like, she is talking to a fake dead bird and she is making me feel every emotion. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, I guess one other point about the hours. Can I ask you, I imagine that the hours is like, uh, as as the formal representative of the lesbian Twitter community based on what happened to you this week, which (laughs) which we can or can't get into. Um, I imagine that the hours is just like ripe fodder because like every, not only is every actress in that movie, a queer icon, but like there's just, it's obviously just dripping with lesbian subtext or just text. (laughs) Yeah. I think lesbian Twitter really embraces that movie. I like, I have a lot of friends who just constantly tweet about it. And I think it's a combination of, as you said, I mean, you have Nicole, you have Julianne, and you have Meryl Streep, which I have to say, I'm very angry that she did not get nominated for a Best Sporting Actress nomination with that. It's just a crime. But uh, you have these legends, and you have Alison Janney, and it's like a very, very packed cast. And the film, I think, touches a lot of lesbians. Yeah. yeah. Um, can we talk about... <laughs> can we talk... I just think it's so funny. It has no purpose on this podcast. But can we talk about um, your relationship with Patricia Clarkson oh while, while we have a moment? Oh, my God. Okay. So do you want me to talk about what happened this week? Or just like... Yeah, I think you should set the scene and talk about just kind of like the the trend of putting her into memes. Okay. And then maybe talk about what happened. <laughs> okay, so I think this started like with sharp objects. I mean, I knew who Patricia Clarkson was before and I was a fan of hers, um, as every gay should be. Uh, but I think she gained like a huge fan base after sharp objects. And people just started doing these memes of her um, saying the funniest shit. Uh, I think my personal favorite is the one like, uh, to be a bottom is to know courage. Yeah. <laughs> to, be a, <laughs> to be a top is to 
I don't know, know something to be a verse is to know wisdom or something like that. And um, I'm not actually the one who made them. Uh, a couple of friends of mine were the ones who came up with them and they they just became part of, I guess, our daily life and culture. Um, and Patricia, in her interviews, does like a lot of innuendos and gay jokes. Uh, so I think she just feeds them. Some of the memes are not even like made up. It's just the stuff she says. Like, there is <laughs> one where she's at the interview and she's like, please objectify me. I want to be objectified. And <laughs> I mean, what do I do with that? I have to meme that, right? It's good. Yeah, I just found the one that you were talking about, which is to be a top is to know power, to be a bottom is to show courage, but to be verse is to embody wisdom. And then it's just like a poorly masked red carpet photo of her with her name on it. It's just so good. Because like, who the hell came up with that? Um, So from there, I just have like 30 memes of Patricia saying these stuff. Oh, also there is one where she's like, when I see a hetero, I floor it, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, very common. <laughs> so one day, I think at the Golden Globes, after she won, I tweeted, uh, Golden Globe winner and LGBT warrior Patricia Clarkson with the memes. <laughs> and what I'm wondering is how, so this PR, her PR agent, somehow found this tweet and they were like this this is not something she said these quotes do not belong to uh, Patricia and you need to delete them or like we will report your account my favorite was was that they said we would (laughs) love for the quote to be hers (laughs) (laughs) I know right that's just so funny and um I was so shocked because how did they find the tweet? Why are they taking it so seriously? Have they not seen this before? And I went through their profile and they're not like the kind of company that communicates with people on Twitter. So they just no. retweet stuff about their clients. And I guess it turned into a feud um, between us where I was like, you can tell me what to do. If I want to make gay memes about Patricia Clarkson, I will do it. But um, I think it was especially funny because people started replying to them as like with like jokes and they took the jokes seriously. (laughs) I think someone said, so are you saying she's homophobic? (laughs) And the firm is like, no, she's not homophobic. We are not homophobic. Stop saying that. Like stop attacking us. (sighs) (laughs) Yeah. And then it, it became a thing. It was on BuzzFeed. And the funniest thing I have to say, I don't know if I should say this publicly, but uh, someone I was talking on Tinder wrote to me two days ago and they were like, wait, did I just see you on BuzzFeed? Beautiful. <laughs> and I was like, yes, BuzzFeed is getting me laid. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. I think... Um... First of all, you guys should look at the BuzzFeed article. It's beautiful. It has a beautiful uh, headshot for you. So I guess that's that's wonderful promo. Oh, yeah. I chose, like, the most gorgeous photo I love. It's a great because, photo. Yeah, it's a good photo. <laughs> I, uh, I just think it's really funny because it reminds me sort of of 
me getting in trouble for asking Nicole about her wigs in that like it's obviously so well intentioned but from an outside audience like it sometimes can seem like like someone's being made fun of or something but then I think about like people making fun of Millie Bobby Brown and calling her (laughs) or saying she hates gays and I'm like oh that's like actually kind of hurtful because she's a child and we're saying that she's homophobic whereas this is like there's no bad side yeah I know right why would you want to I mean who is going to hate on Patricia Clarkson for saying that to be a verse is to embody wisdom, you know? <laughs> it's not It's not bad, bad publicity. Uh, I guess to make this about the podcast, I will say that um, in the BuzzFeed article, there are tweets not only from you, but also from former guests, Ben Empey and Russell Falcon. So that's my way of justifying this being in the podcast. <laughs> yeah, all gays share one brain cells and uh, we all tweet the same things. <laughs> You nailed it though. You nailed there's that one clip that or that one quote from you where it just says, once you play a lesbian, lesbians embrace you forever. And <laughs> I think like that is just so true. I mean, it's like that proves how well intentioned it is. And I feel like I, I guess with playing um, you know, gay, it's like sometimes sort of different because I, I guess the, the gays are maybe quicker to like judge straight people for playing gay sometimes, but um lesbians just wanna make memes and I love that. Yeah, we we just want to have some fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, should we? <laughs> I just keep looking. We have nothing to fear except for heterosexuality itself. <laughs> That's so good. That's one of my favorites. Should we? Um, I just really don't want to talk about this movie. Should we talk about it? We're talking about the upside in theaters now. <laughs> yeah, don't promote it. Don't say it's in theaters now. I have to say, I'm really happy that like last night I went to see it. I uh, took as long as I could without seeing it and saw it last minute. Um, And it was just me and uh, five white boys in baseball caps and like great sweatpants. And they were talking about Kanye just before the film. And I was just praying, like, I hope they don't realize I'm gay because um, <laughs> this is not going to be pleasant. You were but, like the Ellen Page gif where she's like, I am here because I'm gay. Yeah. <laughs> and But it was like a huge theater. I don't know why they gave them such a, gave that movie such a huge theater, but um, it was empty mostly. There were just six people, which makes me really happy. <laughs> that is really interesting because, so I guess a couple of things. One, uh, congratulations on seeing it this week and therefore not contributing to its number one opening like I fucking did because I'm an idiot. Um, was it number one? Yeah, I think it opened at number one. It, at the very least, it um, I, at the very least, it opened above Aquaman, which was like the big thing because it was just like Nicole Kidman topping Nicole Kidman, which is um, a sentence that I love. I I want that as a tattoo, Nicole Kidman topping yeah. Nicole Kidman. <laughs> um, I don't have the patience to look it up, but let's just say that it beat Aquaman. And um, my theater was also a big theater. It was opening night, but I saw it at like six p.m. And I was like, no one will be there. And it was, first of all, full. I sat in the back row because I was like, maybe I can try and write some notes, which I wasn't able to do because someone sat next to me. And then uh, they were like rolling in the aisles laughing at most of this movie. Like it was the oh funniest my God. thing. And I was like, I am scared right now. Like this is Donald Trump's America and I'm fucking <laughs> terrified. I was like, I don't feel safe in my home anymore, which is the AMC Saratoga. I, I just don't understand that. Like, I mean, okay, I laughed like once or twice during the film, 
But um, like other people, even though they were like white boys in caps, they were not rolling on the floor laughing either. So I don't know what, what would you laugh at? There's nothing funny in it. I honestly don't even know how people found out about it because like, I remember when I started this podcast and it was like, I don't know, like uh, October of 2017. And I remember seeing this movie in like um, post-production and being like, okay. And then like never hearing about it since. And so I'm like, how did you guys like, how did you guys even find out? I guess maybe like they're advertising on cable or something, fucking Fox News or something, something that I wouldn't see. But I I don't know because like, Okay, so I go to the films very regularly and I see the same trailers again and and again and again. And I have never once seen a trailer for this film, like, ever. No, all I, all I, (laughs) I think you saw this, but all I see is the trailer for La Bala and, (laughs) um, oh, Miss Bala, I'm so sorry, I Miss Bala. I hate that movie so much. I'm so tired of it. Okay, I have to say. One, that movie, Miss Bala, and second, A Dog's Way Home, and Mm -hmm. third, uh, I don't even know what it is. It's about like a kid falls into ice, and they're all very Christian. Oh, with that woman who called someone a bitch on the (laughs) Emmys red carpet. Oh, yeah. I think the woman from This Is Us, and she's like, God, I will do anything to... Uh, keep my child alive and God yeah. keeps the child alive. At one point she goes know. on the roof of the hospital like it's the end of Support the Girls and she says, I surrender. <laughs> oh my God, it's just so bad. I do get that Miss Bala song stuck in my head where it's like um, the song about like, it's like hit you like a tidal wave or whatever when she like oh, cocks yeah. the gun. Oh yeah. I hope what Gina Rodriguez it? makes a billion dollars from that movie but I'll never see it. <laughs> what was it the bullet solves everything yeah yeah yeah. in the end the bullet settles everything that's what i tweeted <laughs> oh god um, it's bad but like i don't know and maybe it's just like people kevin hart warriors are coming out of the woodwork to like support him and his homophobia but i'm like why are you all here like this is a remake of a french film that is like a remake of an indian film i'm like i know that's not why you're here i don't think anyone is like a huge Brian Cranston stan like in the movies at least unless they love Trumbo (laughs) I don't know um this yeah this movie like sat in like the Weinstein company fucking vault because it was like one of the movies that just got shelved during the like uh like whole like sexual abuse fiasco and I'm just like, who who was waiting for this movie to get released from the goddamn like vault so they could go see it? Why didn't they just like shelve it forever? They sold it to STX, which like explains why we keep seeing all those rough uh, trailers because STX sometimes produces those shitty like um, like vaguely religious movies that we were talking about. They're also producing the Ugly Dolls movie, which is why you probably saw an Ugly Dolls trailer. Oh my god, is that why? Because I was like, this has nothing to do with this movie. What's happening? Yeah, that's um, that's it. <laughs> I will also say that STX has another Kevin Hart project in the works, so they are just fully bought in on him. Oh god. I actually did not know the upside was coming out. Um, haha, coming out, Kevin Hart. Anyway, um, 
And now it makes so much sense why Kevin Hart was just like all over every single TV show and just being like, I'm not going to apologize. I apologize before in literally every single talk show, but never apologizing. Um, So he was just promoting a movie. So that's good. I was um, considering watching The Untouchables and I just was like, I can't watch this plot again. Like, I'm not paying $4 to watch this movie again. Oh, yeah. I I considered it as well uh, to, like, have a context for this. But then I was like, you know, if that film is good, then this is going to feel feels so much worse. (laughs) All of the, like, reviews on iTunes... um, were just like, just like, oh, it's a, it's a nice movie about friendship, and I was like, that's sort of what I saw, and I don't need to see it again. I think I like, I'm always tweeting about how I want movies about male friendship. I said this during the genius episode, but I'm like, not this. <laughs> like, I don't want yeah. this. Yeah, I I want male friendship, but never like this. A fr- a few friends of mine have seen it, and they said it was alright, but like, it wasn't. Um, as big as everyone says it is. I think it's in like top 200 IMDb movies, the original one. The French. Uh, it was like pretty well received as far as I know. So I wouldn't doubt that. Um, there's just like, there's too much gay panic in this movie. <laughs> there's like, there's oh that, my ex- God, that scene when he's like inserting that thing inside Brian Creston's penis for him to pee. Like yeah. it goes on for so long. Yeah. So like, just to set the scene, this movie is basically about Brian Cranston playing like a very rich entrepreneur who becomes a quadriplegic because he gets in like a paragliding accident. And Kevin Hart is like just out of prison and like stumbles his way into being this guy's life auxiliary. And Nicole Kidman is like, Brian Cranston's, like, business friend, but, like, they kind of want to fuck each other, but, like, it's not really apparent until the end where it's, like, convenient for them to do that. (laughs) And the whole movie is basically just, like, a couple of things. One is, like, how funny is it to be disabled? And the other was, like, how funny is it to be black? And, like, the other one is, like, how funny is it to, like, make fun of gay people? It's, like, basically this movie. Also, somehow, I didn't know this, Juliana Morgulis is there. I don't know why she's there, but she's in it. <laughs> yeah, this cast is wild. She shows up in like the third act for like a good 12 minutes. And it is, I mean, it's shocking when she does. Yeah, she entered the scene and I was like, is is that the good wife? And it was the good wife. I was, but she was not a good wife in it. No, anyway. she was the, she wasn't the good wife. She was the bad girlfriend. Yeah. And that whole, we have to talk about that plot. Like, we have to. Also, the fact that this movie is over two hours is truly insulting. It is, because, like, there is absolutely no logical reason for it to be two hours. I keep saying this. This new trend of making every film two hours is so unnecessary. Yeah, it's all all movies should be no longer than Francis Ha, ever. (laughs) All movies should be either 90 minutes or three hours, and there is no in-between. Yeah. Um, I don't even know where to start, but like, there, uh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think. I honestly, I'm like at a loss. Uh, we should talk, we should talk about the catheter scene, which is what you were mentioning, which is like, 
Um, first of all, Nicole Kidman is like, I don't like you, Kevin Hart. So you have three strikes um, and then we're kicking you out. And one of them is that he immediately says that he won't um, help Brian Cranston, like go to the bathroom in any capacity because like that involves dicks and like for a man to have to touch another man's dick is the funniest thing in the world. Yeah. Um, but eventually he's like, I'm going to man up and swallow my pride and like help him insert this catheter. And it is one of the longest scenes in the movie. It's like a 10 minute take of them it both just so laughing long. about it. Yeah, he's just like, he, I, I'm like, why is he so bothered by this? I just don't understand. I mean, okay, you're a bit homophobic, but um, I'm saying bit as a joke, but. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a very weirdly orchestrated scene too, because Brian Cranston's character is like, kind of like making fun of him for it. Cause like, what else can he do? He just like has to yeah. be there. Um, but that like really just carries over for the whole movie. Also, I was thinking about it specifically during this scene, but this role was like originally um, being offered to Michelle Williams. And like, can you imagine Michelle Williams having to talk to Kevin Hart about like inserting a finger in Brian Cranston's butt to like stimulate him basically? Can you imagine that? That that would ruin me, I think. And (laughs) I think that would ruin Michelle as well. I don't think she would be able to like come back from that. Just yeah, like Nicole Kidman, yeah, Nicole Kidman's had to look at Zach Efron and say, like, if anyone's going to pee on you, it's going to be me. So, like, she can do this. <laughs> but, like, poor Michelle Williams. <laughs> we don't need to yeah. ruin her yet. Michelle can't do that. She's too, oh. um, she's too delicate for this. <laughs> how, um, how do you feel about the plot with Kevin Hart's, like, family and what happens with them? It was so basic like so underdeveloped and so cliche that um it just it was just there because it had to be there I think like there is a lot of potential there obviously there always is potential but no one uses it uh so you have this man who just like got out of jail and he has a young son and his ex you know Everything just fixes itself after he gets them a house. Yeah, this movie teaches you that money truly can solve all your issues. Yeah, and like the closure is just him finally getting money to like get them a house. And the woman whispers like, or mouse, thank you. And we never hear from them again. He just goes back to the house at some point, but uh, everything is fixed. Everything he's done is fixed. His son loves him now. So yeah, at one point, at one point, like the white or the ex-wife who was played by um, Asian Naomi King of how to get with murder fame. Um, she says like to Kevin Hart, she says like, you think just cause like, you came around one time that like, it's magically going to be fixed. But then literally the next time he comes around, he's like, I bought a house and they're just like fixed. <laughs> yeah. It plays itself. The phone plays itself. Yeah. <laughs> um, there is like, I mean, this movie is basically green book too, because like, there are all these setups of like Brian Cranston listens to opera, but like Kevin Hart listens to Aretha Franklin and like, the way that they compromise at the end is that Brian Cranston finds a version of Aretha Franklin singing Ness and Dorma. And like, suddenly they, they understand each other because they found a compromise. 
It's, I, I don't even, I mean, at least you can say Green Book has Marshala Ali, who is like a talent that does not belong to that movie. But I, I don't know what's with this trend of like people coming together after they realize their music taste is actually similar. And that whole plot about like him starting to like opera and like, painting and all that i was like why are you trying to show him as someone oh he actually really understands art and he has an artistic soul it's just the circumstances and yeah. I'm like, you, don't, you don't need to do that first of all like you can just he, he doesn't have to understand art and like this rich people hobbies to be a good person yeah it's it's really insulting and i really do think it is like trumpian in its like execution where it's like i think these movies like make most of middle america like sit down and feel really good about themselves because they're just like oh i was laughing with them therefore like no i definitely like like people as a whole and like what a good person i am and it's like the reality of what they're watching is just like the most divisive contrived like awful awful stuff exactly it's just it's just a movie for people to feel good about themselves also like how about the um the like character of like the physical therapist who is a persian iranian actress and uh just like the way that she's treated where like kevin hart just like basically sexually harasses her from the jump and she like gets a moment of trying to resist but then for the rest of the movie is just like no I'm fine yeah no that's good I like that yeah and I I forgot the actress's name but she was in a Jim Jarmusch film um with oh she was in Patterson I think yeah she's Uh, in Patterson and she's she's also in in a Pirates of the Caribbean movie okay so I was gonna say that because um I remember an interview with her about Pirates of the Caribbean and they asked her, like, did you enjoy, like, shooting this film? And she was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> she says, like, they cut most of my scenes because, like, they don't they don't care about art in these films. But, like, I have to do these films for the money. And I'm just thinking, this is just another movie she had to do for the money. <laughs> yeah, this poor woman who's, like, had a pretty extensive career, like, specifically overseas. And, like, she just comes to America and has to, like, work across from Kevin Hart and, like, teach him how to, like, lift Brian Cranston's legs so he doesn't get bed sores. Yeah, she's just, like, filling a diversity quota uh, in random films, basically, which is really sad. Yeah, this woman was in a movie that won a silver bear at Berlin. <laughs> like, this this poor woman. I know, exactly. Um, God, what? Do you want to talk? Uh, should we talk about, like, Brian Cranston's, like, dream flashbacks and, like, the situation with his deceased wife? I don't even know <laughs> what the make of that whole thing it is also another underdeveloped plot where, you know, the classic, of course, our lead guy has a wife who died and is no longer there. And we don't even see the wife's face properly. There isn't even like a photo of her around, but like she serves as a purpose to like his development or like his pain. But 
I don't even remember her name. Um, only because I'm looking at the Wikipedia. Her name is Jenny. Uh, okay. Because he also yells it a couple times. But the thing that I think that is craziest about that plot is it's like, we know that Brian Cranston was injured because they went parasailing. And you're like, oh, she like, it must have been bad. And they must have both got injured and she died. And it's like, nope, an hour in, we're going to tell you that they went because she had cancer. And then so they thought it would be a fun thing to do. And then he became a quadriplegic. So at one point, they were both alive. She was dying of cancer before his eyes. He was a quadriplegic. And they just like basically sat around and looked at each other. And it's like, this is horribly sad for this movie i know right i was thinking that and i wish there was like some kind of flashback to like what happened and like how much time has passed because you don't know sometimes like cancer patients live very very long and what doesn't make sense to me is that there is a scene of brian cranston getting out of the hospital and he tells nicole kidman that he didn't want any extreme measures to bring him right. back. So I'm thinking, okay, if he's just getting out of the hospital, like, then is his, but you said his wife was alive, so, but he's just getting out and getting a take caretaker. What's happening? There's yeah. so much confusion. You bring up another, like, really good point, which is, so, exactly that. So, Brian Cranston's character is, like, firmly do not resuscitate and tells Kevin Hart, like, one of the reasons I chose you is because, like, I need you to agree to this. And then, like, 20 minutes later, Brian Cranston's character is, like, uh, maybe choking on something, a thing that he tells us happens often. And Kevin Hart, like really goes out of his way to save him. And it's like, what did you just learn? Like, this is actually just disrespectful to this character and his wishes, but Brian Cranston also doesn't really seem to care. Yeah, he laughs at something he says. And I feel like that was such, um, that was just a point to get it out. Like, because they had this conversation, there had to be a scene where he is choking or dying. And it was... That whole idea about him like wanting to die was so underdeveloped and that whole thing like, oh, now he has a friend who makes him see the beauties of the world and he no longer wants to die is just such an awful thing. I like do understand that this is a comedy ultimately, comedy in quotes, and I do understand that like these people are based on real people that are still alive. So it's like, you can't really have him die, but then like, maybe don't have, like, maybe don't try to take a stance on, uh, you know, like the very controversial topic of like assisted suicide and DNR and, and all of those things. Like maybe just don't have that be a part of your American comedy. Yeah. Cause there it's disrespectful to the patient, obviously. I mean, um, I don't know. It's such a controversial topic, but it, I mean, I'm not surprised this film has a scene with that. But uh, I specifically want to talk about Julia Morgley's, uh, Morgley's, I don't know how to say her surname, and Nicole Kidman and like the contrast between them. Oh, I know please. this is your... I mean, no, this is, this is the meat <laughs> of what we're here to do. Okay, so it annoyed me so much because, I mean... So Nicole Kidman's character has been with this guy, like been friends with him for a long time. And it makes so much sense that she knows how to take care of uh, someone who is disabled. While 
Juliana's character, like she just met him. And I don't think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think she does anything that is rude or like, um, I don't know, something hateful towards him or like his disability. Uh, like she tries her best, but she she's just honest about like how it's a lot at first, which is, I think, a very honest scene. And of course, like it's a lot for a person to know how to do those things at first. And she doesn't say anything bad about it. She doesn't say like, oh, we should, I don't know. Yeah, it's, anyway. it, it's interesting because, again, it is a wildly complicated topic that is boiled down to basically just like, fury from brian cranston's character so like nicole at this point has been helping him write love letters which kevin hart thinks are letters or like conversations between the two of them so he thinks that nicole and brian are trying to bang it out um but he's been like a pen pal with this woman kevin hart basically peer pressures him into calling her they end up going on a date surprise it's juliana margulies and they have like a an eight course meal and over it you know she starts like spoon feeding him um and seems to be okay with it and then there's like one horrible insert shot of like um like a drop of food that gets like on his lapel and that's supposed to signify like juliana margulies you're gonna have to be like wiping up his um food for the rest of your life and then like something tectonic happens inside of her and she's like i just you know i talked to my therapist about this and i didn't didn't realize like i knew it would be work but i didn't know how much work but she says it in a way that is like very honest and realistic. And she's like being very upfront with her feelings. She's not like, fuck you. I have to leave this instant. She's just like, Oh, maybe Dell should be here on this first date. That is a three hour dinner. And he just like erupts and like flees the restaurant. He's like knocking shit over. He never wants to see her again. It's like, okay. Yeah. It was. And that scene where like someone drops just as he's getting out, they drop like a hot water or something on him. And he's like, it's okay. I don't feel anything. And it oh was my God, I forgot so about that. Hard. <laughs> it was so hard to not laugh at this. I mean, it's just, it's a horrible scene. And it draws this comparison between like Nicole and Julianne's character, where this guy did not give a fuck about Nicole up until he met this woman. And if the woman was, I don't know, if their conversation went differently, he would never look at Nicole's character again. But like suddenly he has this realization that like Nicole is the right one because I don't know, she knows how to spoon feed him. I don't it's know. so fucking contrived too, because like what happens after that is like, he's mad at Kevin Hart. Um, there's that scene where like, I fucking hate men yelling. So the scene where Kevin Hart is breaking things for him and Brian Cranston is like yelling and like letting it all out is like horribly traumatizing for me. Um, it's so but then, bad. But then also Brian Cranston's that. acting in that scene is bad. one of the worst acting as I've ever seen, but yeah, gone. Bad. But then like Nicole comes in and then he snaps at her. So it's not even like he goes to Julianne and is, or Juliana and is like, uh, you're wrong for me, therefore Nicole's right. He's like, no, I'm going to fire Nicole Kidman. And then only because Kevin Hart will bring her to me months later when I have a beard, will I be like, okay, I can settle for you. We are in love now. Yeah, it's just, and 
apparently Nicole leaves because he's so mean to her, but like, of course she comes back because what does a Harvard graduate businesswoman who is pretty and probably rich have anything to do besides just come back to Brian Cranston again and again, despite like him hurting her feelings? Of course she will. Yeah, someone asked, I guess Kevin Hart asks her, like, basically, why are you here? And he's, she's like, well, I was brought on to, like, help with his business affairs because I'm a businesswoman. Um, and then I just, like, could never leave. And it's like, um, but, like, you could. And he's, like, pretty mean to you consistently. Yeah. Also, I love how there is, like, do you know what her job is? I mean, she says she's a businesswoman. But, like, what business? Is what I'm wondering because Brian Cranston is an author, so she could be her, she could be his agent, she could be handling his finances, she could be doing anything. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's the latter. I think she's handling his finances, but like even his career is pretty nebulous because we see like his book that's like a kind of like a businessy self help like book. I don't know. And then, of course, they have to have an insert where, like, his author photo isn't him, like, a portrait. It's, like, him standing up because they really have to hit home that he was successful when he could stand. Yeah, that was so funny to me because, like, that that doesn't happen. Like, back of the books do not have photos. No, it's, a full, it's a full head-to-toe shot that takes up, like, half of the dust jacket. Yeah. Also, I didn't... A part I didn't get was like, you know, one of the guys who uh, comes for the job, like to interview says like you, your book was so important to me and like, it means a lot. Could you sign it? And I'm like, wait, like who would, who would ask an order of a business book to sign? Like what could, it's a book about business theory. How did it affect your life so much? Yeah, it like literally only, um, there are a lot of those jokes where like basically the setup is like, can you sign this? And then the punchline is like, no, he fucking can't because he can't move his own hands. And it's like, that's the first time we see it. And then continually throughout the movie, people are like, can you do this? Can you write this? It's so bad. They just keep doing it again and again and again. Um, how about the subplot where like, uh so as you mentioned kevin hart becomes like inspired by art and he makes like um like half like graffiti because we have to remind the audience of where this character came from like half abstract expressionist painting that is like objectively bad um and then brian cranston like sells it to his neighbor who's tate donovan um and then like that's the money that kevin hart uses to buy a house i you know, <laughs> I have to take a deep breath because I have no idea what the fuck that was about. And why didn't Brian Cranston, who is rich enough to like buy the jets, did not just give him the money? Like, why did he sell the painting? Also, okay, this is very specific, but like Kevin Hart's character says, maybe I'll be the ne- next uh, Busquette, who is like, he, yeah. he he's a famous artist. And I'm like, so wait, you're saying that this guy doesn't know anything about art, but like randomly references Busquet and what's happening? Does he know about art? Does he not know about art? Make that's it make one of those, like, Yeah, that's one of those throwaway jokes where it's like the joke is like, oh, Kevin Hart is uneducated, so he mispronounces his name. So like 
he can try all he wants, but he'll like never be a part of this. But it's just like, what does that get us? Also, the setup for it is improbable. Yeah. Um, God, what was I going to say? Oh, also, you know, as someone who has been known to jewel, how do you feel about the multiple scenes <laughs> where, <laughs> where this, uh, where this dynamic duo just gets high and like roams around New York? Okay, just for our audience, I like to clarify that I do not jewel <laughs> because I'm not in high school, but um, mm-hmm. I smoke e-cigarettes, which is different ah. because I'm addicted to nicotine. So please, but... I'm so sorry. I think we had a pretty animated conversation about jeweling before this, so you'll understand my yeah. confusion here. Yeah, just making it sure so people don't make fun of me. But uh, but as also someone who lives in Seattle where people smoke weed all the time... Um, that scene was so kind of like, that was another thing about like how Kevin Hart's background is actually like very, makes him very fitting to work for Brian Cranston. Cause like none of those educated people would think of getting meat for him, but Kevin Hart's character knows because he's been to jail or something like that. And I'm like, yeah, he says that at one point. And then they go and they do a drug deal in um, Central Park. Yeah, and I'm like, that that is wrong on so many levels. Like, you're implying that this, these rich people never smoke weed and do not know how to buy weed and, like, do not have access to very expensive weed. And it has to be Kevin Hart going to Central Park and getting that I don't know. Yeah, also, like, the payoff is they just, like, go to a hot dog place because, like, of course, Brian Cranston can never have a hot dog because he's rich, so he buys, like, a hundred. It's just all, like, so contrived. It's the the KFC scene from Green Book is what it is. It it is that exact scene. Actually, someone should write about that, you know, like, Green Book versus the Upside. People should do it. get ready for me to submit my pitch to you as soon as this podcast (laughs) is over. Boy, do I have an angle on the upside for you, for all your readers. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. It's just, you know how you said, like, it's a movie for Trump's America? So it it makes me think, like, it makes probably people think, oh, look at this rich guy. Like, he's rich, but he gets us like he's having we he's having hot dogs like a one dollar hot dog at a corner spot in new york and actually he doesn't like all his rich friends and that is another thing that made me really angry which is that this guy probably had a lot of friends and not just like some random rich people i mean he's an author he's been living like he probably has intellectual friends that are like really close to him. Yeah, but... at one point Nicole like throws that surprise party for him, which he's very rude about. Yeah. And like there seem to be quite a few people there that like genuine like there's that neighbor who we can who we're told doesn't like him, but everyone else seems to be like genuinely there for him. Yeah, exactly. And not even once like any of them talk to him. So it's creating this thing that uh oh, look, he does not care about these other rich people because those rich people are bad. But Brian Cranston is a good rich person because he can no longer walk or move his hands. So now he understands the poor people. There's so many implications. Yeah, it's it's really weird because, like, again, it's for Trump's America because that 
white audience gets to sit down and say like, well, I'm obviously not Kevin Hart's character. So therefore I'm this billionaire. And that's the character that I like get to feel good about being. And it's like not even fun. It's not even fun wealth porn. Like it's not even like crazy rich Asians where you're just like having a great time during it. It's like sad wealth porn. Yeah. I mean, he's wealthy, but at what cost? <laughs> like he just there, has. That's, that's the conversation the movie asks us to consider, I guess. Yeah. Maybe this movie is brilliant and we've just overlooked it. Maybe it's like a new masterpiece. It's, yeah. it's the crash or driving Mrs. Daisy. Um, I like, I don't know. I just feel like I just watched Aquaman, which like, again, is definitely meant to appeal to as many people as possible. But even there, I'm like, maybe that's kind of like secretly subversive and the director got to do some crazy things just knowing that it was a DC movie whereas like this I'm just like where why am I here yeah exactly like I went to I sneaked into Aquaman uh, with my girlfriend and um we just left Spider-Man and there were like lights in the next room going like the film is starting Aquaman and we were like fuck it let's go in and we did and it was awful but it was also a lot of fun because it was just like a cliche generator went completely mad and made a film about it. So you're at least having fun. But with this one, it's obvious that like the director took it very seriously and did not think this is just bullshit. It's bad. Um, just to talk about Nicole slightly more, there really is not much to go off of. But how about that scene where um, she, she dances. dances at the party? Yeah. <laughs> okay. The only interesting thing that she does in the whole movie. I was ready to talk about it because um, I think they tried very hard to make Nicole Kidman not look like Nicole Kidman, like as a goddess she is. Mm-hmm. And like they tried to make her look like one of those rich people who is like went to Harvard and does not look that good, like conventionally attractive. And they failed miserably because I'm in love with her. She's yeah. perfect. If you, if you go to Letterboxd, the like profile image or the header image that they have is the scene where um, she's dictating the letters. So she's front and center. And I'm like, oh, it's a good look. Like it's a Margot at the wedding basically yes. look. It's a great look. And she is all like, I don't know, assertive and fun and a bit shy. And I'm like, I want Nicole Kidman to top me in every role she does. And then, Honestly, same. Yeah. I'm, what was that? I don't know if you ever saw on Twitter, but I have a friend called Nick who has a tweet and it's like, I'm just the boy standing in front of a middle-aged woman <laughs> asking to be kept. <laughs> That's just a really... Yeah. It's really similar to last night. I tweeted a screenshot from Boy Erased, which is just Lucas Hedges saying, um, like, I'm gay and I'm your son. And I was just like, no, every, <laughs> everyone who's ever been nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Oh my God, I saw that. That's so, exactly, I think that really fits. And that scene she's dancing, she's just so adorable. And um, also it pushes me to the point where we have to talk about why Nicole did this film. Because I'm thinking on the one hand, did she have more scenes where she could get maybe like in some alternative universe, get a sporting nomination or something? Like, was that the plan? Or 
was she in like did she have no money which is not possible i just can't see any reason to justify this it really doesn't make any sense and i'm like trying to trace it back because also this movie had like um i think it's important to point out that this movie at various points had like three different directors and like three different um screenwriters so i know that at one point it was paul feig that was supposed to direct and write so i could see her oh. like yeah and like at one point they were looking at like an idris elba colin firth was in the mix um they were floating around Jessica Chastain for that Nicole role. So I can see like very much signing on. And oh then, yeah, that is a completely different movie. Yeah. Also <laughs> like we know Nicole has a history with the Weinstein company that I don't necessarily need to talk about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah. And then like they end up with Neil Berger who like, I don't know, directed Divergent. And... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Actually, the whole whole series of those and like the illusionists. So it's like I, I can see her being like bait and switched by this and then just kind of being stuck in this movie. I mean, that guy, um, the director, I guess, is really good at like getting people to sign on in his movies, because I don't know if anyone remembers, but Naomi Watts wasn't divergent. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. So maybe I don't know. I don't know how he does it, but he gets the these people. I mean, maybe Zoe Kravitz, who was in Divergent, went to Nicole on the set of Big Little Lies and was like, you should do The Upside with Neil Berger <laughs> because he is just the... And I know you worked with Stanley Kubrick. I know you worked <laughs> with, with, you know, these amazing directors, but I really think you should give Neil Berger a shot and she was like okay <laughs> okay I have to do this because Zoe told me to and I completely forgot Zoe Kravitz wasn't divergent yeah I think the saddest part of this movie for me is that poor Nicole has had to do like Instagram story promotion for it I know and you I can tell so she sad. doesn't you can tell she's like really torn about it or her PR firm is really torn about it because like it's just the bare minimum it's just like so happy my film The Upside is in theaters. Like, go see it. It's not like, had a great time with Brian and Kevin, my new best friend. Oh, yeah. I saw her Instagram post and I was like, Nicole, don't do it. And I'm sure she wasn't the one. Like, her PR was probably like, okay, we have to do this, I guess. Yeah. They're, I mean, they've already made their money back and then some. So I guess, I guess everyone wins except for us, the people that had to see it. Yeah, exactly. And I didn't see any, well, I guess I didn't go out looking for it either, but I didn't see any interviews with like Brian and Kevin together. Oh, absolutely. I've, I've only seen the interviews um, where Brian Cranston says like he regretted doing this role, which like, yes, you should. Oh, did he? Why? Um, because it's like potentially, I mean, it, it's not potentially, it is pretty offensive. <laughs> oh, yeah. It is. But that's that's good that he realized it, I guess. Yeah, it's kind of like a Jeffrey Tambor being like, this is the last time a cis man is ever going to play a trans woman. And you're like, oh, okay, now you have an award in your hand. Uh, that, but it... <laughs> Sorry. I'm, trying to, I'm just trying to look for like a, a, a review on Rotten Tomatoes from like anyone that I care about that like said something in either way, but like nobody even 
dared touch this this movie. Oh yeah, I considered before going in. I was like, oh maybe I should like after I leave, I should write a review about this. Then I got out. I'm like, I have nothing to say. Uh, the only person that I can see that I care about is Emily Yoshida wrote that it's a, it feels like a sweater with the holes in all the wrong places. <laughs> I love her. She's so good. Uh, that's, that's wonderful. Do you, um, do you want to play film critic here and try to rate this movie on some categories? Okay. Oh God. I think on Letterboxd, I gave it one star. You did. I checked. I gave it a half star, which is maybe a little vengeful. I should probably bump it up to a one, but I'm probably not going to. I think I gave it one because like one star for Nicole, who is the only star in this movie. And yeah. the rest is just no stars. I. It's not just that um, if it was a good movie, despite Kevin Hart's homophobia and that I'm not homophobic press tour where he was more homophobic. Uh, I would still say, okay, like this guy is awful, but the film was well done, but it was not. (laughs) It's an objectively bad performance. I honestly think that, um, Asia like the only, yeah, I only, I think that Asia Naomi King and like maybe Juliana Margulies are like the only good performances in this movie. Yeah, definitely. Um, So, I guess in competing for the Golden Compass, uh, I think I'm going to give you some one through five categories and you're going to have to choose how you feel about them with this movie. Before this, you had said you were going to give it zeros, but I will say that you should uh, stick to one through five. So we'll be generous and give them a one if needed. Okay. Um, But the first thing in the movie is the wigs in the film. So either just Nicole or or everyone, how do you feel about them? Oh, who had wigs besides Nicole? I think it might be just Nicole. I mean, maybe Juliana, but it's like a very like true to life wig and like maybe Asia Naomi King. But I would say this is primarily Nicole's wig. Okay. Just for a second, I will Google her wig and yeah, see how it, it looks. Nicole King upside. Yeah, I don't think um, it's particularly I actually, terrible. I don't think it's terrible. I think it's a very natural looking wig in which like her hair is supposed to be unkept and bad. Kind of. I think it's a good wig. I ra- I rate this wig um, three and a half or four stars. I would say. I'll give you. I'm gonna say it's a three. I'm gonna. I'm gonna downgrade you. From actually, no, you said three and a half or four. Okay, I'll give you the four. I'll let you round up. You know, maybe three. Actually, you know, three okay. <laughs> Sorry, I, I think I think I think I said four because it's a bit ginger, and you know, mm. I do. I do have a thing for gingers, but actually, no, this is like a tree big. Yeah. I think it's like a perfect, well, not perfect. That's an overstatement, but I think it's a nice like Disney channel, regular woman, mom wig. Exactly. Exactly. Um, How do you feel about, okay. So how do you feel about the accents in this film? Which like, we didn't really talk about it, but Nicole is mainly just using her regular speaking voice, right? Oh yeah. She didn't, I, I don't think she bothered. <laughs> yeah, she was like, "Oh, this character doesn't. This character's so thin; it doesn't say where she's from." Fine, I will just talk yeah. like I talk. We just know that she went to Harvard and she does business. So uh, I think Nicole's natural accent is always a delight to hear. But I think she Americanized it just a bit. But like, if you asked me where she's from, I would not be able to tell you. Like, she Americanized it that way. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty ambiguous. I don't think it's, like, a particularly interesting accent. 
Yeah, and I don't think no one else had an accent, did they? I mean, they did, but not something specific. Yeah, I don't think so. So we will just, because we love Nicole's natural accent, we are going to give her a four. Great. Uh, so far, the upside, doing pretty well on this scale. Um, this next one is uh, the Naomi Watts scale. So a high score on this would mean that Naomi Watts is like super into this movie. Uh, maybe, <laughs> she, maybe she like auditioned for the Nicole Kidman role or the Juliana Margulies role, or maybe oh, heard no. text about it. And a low score would be like Naomi Watts, like muted Nicole's Instagram stories after seeing the promo. Okay. Well, I, I feel like Naomi actually Instagrammed about this. Didn't she? I, okay, so full disclosure, I don't follow Naomi Watts on Instagram. <gasps> oh my god, how dare you? I follow very few, like, outside of, like, people I know from, like, real life and Twitter, I think I follow, like, Nicole and, like, Isabelle Huppert and, like... Okay, I just like, checked. accounts. <laughs> I just checked, and Naomi Instagrammed about Destroyer, but uh, she did not Instagram about the upside. I love that she Instagrammed about Destroyer, side note. Yeah, and she... Uh, she also Instagrammed about Weiss, but I don't know. Well, no. um, so I would say from Naomi perspective, I feel like she definitely auditioned for it, but also at the same time, uh, she auditioned for it when it was supposed to be a better film. And she did not end the end. Pro- she did like, she, oh God. She did not like the end product. Um, yeah. So I'm going to say two. Okay, great. I think that's about right. I could see her auditioning when it was a Paul Feig production. Yeah. Um, okay, so this next one is approachability, meaning if you see um, Nicole's character, God, what is her name? Yvonne? Yeah. So if oh, you see, wait. You were... Is she like Russian? Because Yvonne I don't, is... I don't... It's very ambiguous. If she is Russian, then we would have to take down the accent point. <laughs> I don't know. Because Yvonne could, like, technically be, like, French. Like, it's just, like, vaguely other. Yeah, let's move on. Okay. Um, So if you saw her character of Yvonne, like, at, a, at like, a dinner party, um, how likely would you be to go up and, like, start talking to her one through five? Oh, definitely five. Yeah, I think for you, it's a hard five. It's not bode well for this score, but um, is probably yeah. the most honest answer. Yeah, I mean, my heart says I should give it a low score because this film sucks. But um, my heart also says Nicole is hot and my point will always be five to go yeah. talk to her. <laughs> but my point also is get the strap. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so this next one I always fuck up, but this is the Scientology scale. And... <laughs> So a high score on this would mean that this movie um, is like the opposite of what Scientology believes. And a low score would mean that this like is basically like what they show you when you um, like wander into a Scientology center. I think it would be that Scientology would love this film. I feel like. I think this is like, yeah. So I think this is a low score because I think Scientology is like, it's a. Yeah. There's, like, no real, like, practices of, like, mental health or... (laughs) Exactly. So I'm going to go with, like, the lowest score. Okay. So we'll give that a one. Yeah, I think this is, like... I think even Tom Tom Cruise is, like, okay, I kind of liked the upside. (laughs) 
Um, and then this last one is overall level of iconicness as this movie kind of fits into Nicole's career. Um, can I give a zero? <laughs> Uh, I always forget. Have I let people give us? There is a zero on the iconicness scale. We gave it to um, Hemingway and Gellhorn. So if you would like to give it a zero, I will allow it. Um, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and give it a zero. I don't think any Nicole Kidman fan will look back and be like, you know what I haven't seen for a long time? The Upside. Yeah, that I love that Nicole Kidman film, The Upside. Exactly. Okay, so... I will tell you that right now you have a 15 out of 30, which I was worried at the beginning coming out of the gate with those fours and fives, but um, that puts you right next to another forgettable Nicole movie, The Railway Man. Um, I have no idea what that is. (laughs) Yeah. It puts you next to another forgettable film, Nightmaster, um, Fur, which is her Diane Arbus film. Um, this, This seems to make sense. This is a very like, Middle of the road score. We can't deny that this movie is going to be successful and will make money, but also that doesn't mean we have to like it. Yeah, because I have not seen any of the films that you have mentioned, so this makes perfect sense. Well, uh, you'll just have to listen. You'll just have to subscribe and listen along and and watch movies. Someone, <laughs> someone recently texted me and was like. Um, quoting something their boyfriend had said, who's also listening to this podcast. Uh, hello to both of you. Um, th- there was something along the lines of like the kid manifesto, like tricks me into thinking that like bad Nicole movies that I've already seen are somehow good. And like, makes me want to watch that. <laughs> like he was talking about Australia and he was like, I own Australia. And like, I know Australia is bad, but like, I kind of want to rewatch Australia. Oh my God. I own Australia on DVD. I bought it like when it first came out. Cause I, I own it. Yeah, I own it in iTunes. It was one of those situations where like renting it was like $3.99 and buying it was like $4.99. So I was just like, I guess I just spend the extra dollar and own <laughs> own Australia forever. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, okay, so I do have one last task for you. And um, this is something that I ask every guest to do. Okay. Uh, we've talked about Big Little Lies a little throughout the episode, um, but I'd like to give you a full minute to talk about it. Um, and feel free to uh, either summarize the plot of season one to explain um, whatever you think is important about Big Little Lies. Um, But whenever you feel ready, you'll have 60 seconds uh, to rant about Big Little Lies. Oh, this is so stressful. Um, So Big Little Lies is, as Oprah once said, the mother I never had, the sister everybody would want, and I do not know a better person. Um, So it's about, so... Or blonde team uh, of Nicole Reese and Reese Witherspoon and Laura Dern are in it. And also Zoid Kravitz is in it. Yeah. Um, and they do what they live in a small town and they have very reality show like fights. Also, Nicole is married to Alexander Skarsgård. Uh, do I give spoilers? Sure. Go for it. Okay, so Alexander Skarsgård is an asshole, and they fuck him up good, even though he fucks them up good first. Oh, wait, the girl from Divergent is also in it. I, I completely forgot. Um, Shailene Woodley, the girl who talks about, like, sunbat bathing her vagina. I don't know. Um, <laughs> that's a minute. Okay, that was Ending. perfect. Ending on Sunbathing My Vagina is a great place to end. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, that's the best I could do. I'm sorry. No, that's wonderful. I'm always, um, and I've said this time and time again, I'm always very interested to know, will people include Shailene? Because a lot of people have very strong Shailene opinions. I do not have a strong opinion on her. I just like completely forgot she existed. That's, <laughs> the, think... best opi- that's the best opinion. <laughs> she is like, I think she's good in it, but I definitely need to rewatch the whole first season before the second one starts and we go deeper into... Yeah, we're getting very close. I think, isn't it like April or something? And we're end of January. I'm really worried that like this podcast will still be going by the time it starts and I'll have to start talking about it. I think, uh, yeah, I think it comes out around the same time as Game of Thrones. So it should be around April. Watch me just talk about Game of Thrones instead of Big Little Lies. (laughs) (laughs) Because you don't like Big Little Lies or? No, no, it's just, I, I, I always say this, but like, I, I just watched it really quickly and I was like, okay, this is good. And I actually, at this point, I'm very excited to go back and kind of like sit down and uh, take it episode by episode and I don't oh, know. Yeah. Get, get I definitely into it. feel that. I definitely, because I feel like I also watched it like very quickly to kind of find out what's happening next. And like, I did not have a chance to digest it properly. So I'm definitely due for a rewatch. Yeah. Sometimes with things that are like where everyone's watching on the same night and like also scrambling to make memes, I get like really intimidated and then it makes me (laughs) kind of like detach. Like I still haven't watched Sharp Objects, even though I read the book years ago, because like everyone was just so ready to just memeify it. And I was like, maybe I'll set this one out. Like I need a breather. I, I rewatched Sharp Objects because what happened was that I was watching it live through like a live stream and with like other people and talking mm-hmm. at the same time. And it was that like I loved it uh, on my first watch as well. But like my second watch really gave me a chance to digest it and watch it more closely and without distractions. Yeah, I'm excited. I guess stay tuned for my my journey through HBO programming of the last three years while I finally catch up. Um, before before we go, uh, can you let people know where they can find you on the internet and that sort of thing? Okay, so you can find me on Twitter at um, albirdilara, which is E-L-B-I-R-N-D-I-L-A-R-A. Um, so I'm quite active, so I apologize in advance about all my insane tweets. And you can also find me at Much Ado About Cinema, where uh, I'm the editor-in-chief. And if you want to read my writing or um, just like see what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm slowly going to get all of the Much Ado team to do this podcast. Uh <laughs> It's going to be also, amazing. <laughs> yeah, you could also find Delara at um, SRA Public Relations Twitter feed where they're asking her <laughs> to please remove content or they'll ask Twitter to do it for them. Um, they love her support of Patricia, but please do not share false quotes. Um, yes. And I guess if you want to see false quotes about Nicole Kidman, you can follow me at Mr. Sam Herbst or the podcast of the Kid Manifesto. And most importantly, uh, I guess, you know, leave a review with your favorite fake Nicole Kidman quote in iTunes or Spotify and, uh, you know, hit that subscribe button. Um, Delara, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was so fun. Um, I'm glad that I had, uh, 
someone who was ready to talk about this awful film with me because otherwise I would have just had to cry into the mic for an hour. Oh yeah, some of us have to sacrifice ourselves for Nicole. Someone has to do it. <laughs> True. Um, thank you again for doing this. And um, as always, remember that when Patricia Clarkson sees a hetero, she floors it. Yes, she does. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. Are you ready to have your mind blown? I'm so ready. Have you ever changed a catheter? Mm. I can't feel it. Well, I can. Just relax. This is me being relaxed. The Upside. Rated PG-13.